FM. You could reach me again, 718-983-9272. 718-801-1923 is my cell. You could text me or you could email me at david at david.com. Mention, of course, that uh, you heard we were speaking with Rabbi Harris, Rabbi Henry Harris, Rabbi Hanoch Harris, from Asia Torah, New York, and from the, what's the formal title, the formal business? The Jewish Center for Well-Being. Jewish Center for Well-Being. Okay, fantastic. I'm so glad you were able to join us. As I always try to end off our shows, it's with the ultimate bracha. We are trying together to give nachas to the Rebona Shalom from all of his children. And the schos of our trying to give nachas to the Rebona Shalom from all of his, we should have nachas from ours, you from yours, me from mine, and our listening audience from all of theirs. Thank you so much for joining us. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. You got it. We'll see you again. Okay. Hello. Good evening. Welcome. Tonight's Jewish Executive Learning Network Shear is going to be on the Parsha. My name is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman. Um, for those of you listening on the radio on 97.5 FM on JRoot Radio, we thank you for joining us as well for our class in the Parsha. And God willing, we're going to have a beautiful class tonight. Um, if you would like to get in touch with me during the week, simply write me an email, director at jeln.org. Also want to thank TorahAnytime.com for broadcasting tonight's class as well and sharing it with the world. So let's do it. So this week's Parsha is a hard one. It's Parsha's Tazria. Parsha's Tazria, we're now really into the heart of the book of Vayikra. And it's getting, it's getting harder. Now, most years, Tatsriya and Mitzayra, Tatsriya and Mitzayra are two Torah portions that are done together. And many times for a speaker, it's better that it's that way, because these are hard parshas. These are hard parshas to teach on, a lot of technical detail. You have to work hard to do it. So normally, Tatsriya and Mitzayra, there's enough real estate in there. You pick some different tire, you're ready to go. But it's hard this year because it's a leap year in the Jewish calendar. And when that happens, Tatsriya is one parsha, one Torah portion, Matsaira is another. So, we had, so I, have, I have like twice the work. But every couple of years it happens like that. But that's okay. We're game. We're ready. We're ready to do it, right? So let's get started. So the parsha begins, chapter 12, verse 2. And the Pesach says that when a woman conceives, a lady conceives, and she gives birth to a male... She will be something we call Tameh, which means ritually impure, for a, a seven-day period. Okay, so the first thing going on in the beginning of the Parsha is it talks about a lady, a woman who gives birth. That's what it talks about. Now, if you look at the last topic at the end of last week's Parsha, Parsha Shemini was dealing with laws of kashras, laws of kosher food. It was talking about what's kosher, what's not kosher. That's what it was talking about. Then, you beginning of our Parsha... It's talking about a lady, some of the laws that happened to a lady who just gave birth. So the question is, why is one next to the other in the Torah? Hashem could have put the laws of kosher food, those laws, you know, he could have cut and pasted it somewhere else in the Chumash. And he could put this, this topic about a lady who just gave birth somewhere else in the Torah. Now, it might seem like it's a different Torah portion, so okay, maybe why are we asking why one's next to the other? But if you roll in the Sefer Torah in the scroll, one thing is next to the other. One thing is next to the other. You have Parsha Shemini, the end, with Allah is the Kashris, and then right after it goes immediately into this lady who gives birth. So what's that about? Shem could have put these topics in different places. So Rav Michal Berenbaum Zatzal, in his Sefer the Sichos Musser, he notes this juxtaposition, and he says it alludes to a well-known halacha. There's a well-known halacha, and this juxtaposition alludes to that. What is that? If you look in Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah in Yeridea says, that even though it may be technically kosher, the milk 
of a non-Jewish lady, if a lady's not Jewish, you don't give that to a Jewish child who's nursing. Let's say you have a, a little baby who's breastfeeding right, th at that stage. If the lady's not Jewish, you don't feed that to a kid. You don't feed that to a, you don't feed that to a kid. Now, even though it's kosher, it's not like it's not kosher. It's not because it's non-kosher. But it says it'll engender in that child something called a tevarot, like a, a certain kind of like different kind of nature, a negative nature. That's what it says. And so, uh, so, and so where is that? That halakha is alluded to from the fact that kosher food and giving birth are like next to each other right there. Okay, that's number one. Number two, it says in halakha, that uh, a nursing mother in general, let's say you're a Jewish lady and you're, and you're breastfeeding, you have to know, you have to be very, very careful to be extra careful with the food you eat. Because if you eat non-kosher, it's going to have a negative, a negative ashpah, a negative influence on your, on your child and harm the child spiritually as he grows. And in fact, the Shach Yeridea comments that if you're a Jewish lady and let's say for some medical reason you have to eat non-kosher food in order to save your life, for medical reason you, you have to do it, so what would happen is that it says the Shach Niradeh, it says in Shulchan Aruch, her husband shouldn't, should go higher, like I, I guess if the, this is before they had formula, certainly, let him go hire a Jewish lady and pay her, you know what I mean, to, to feed the kid for this, for this time. Okay, so what do I want from this? Here's what it, we're trying to say, and we'll build this up. It's clear from those halachic sources that there appears to be something in the food itself that would produce that undesired effect. You follow? There seems to be something in the non-kosher food that if you eat it, there's something in it that uh, a Jew will be spiritually allergic to in the course of his life. And in fact, there's many other sources in, in, in the Rishonim, the medieval commentaries, and the Gemara that indicate that as well. There's a Gemara in Tractate Shabbos, that says that the guf, of a person who does Ayvara Vaidazara, it's tame, it's impure, because such people eat Shkatsam uh, Rumasim, abominable creatures and crawling creatures. So it seems to indicate again that if you eat something that is non kosher, it, it has an effect on the body in like that kind of negative way. The Ramban and also Rabbeinu Vachai in last week's parsha allude to a well known idea, and they say that the midais, the character traits of an animal are actually embedded in the flesh of the bird of the animal. So that when you ingest it, when you eat that thing, what happens is you don't only receive the physical nutrition, but the Torah says, mystically, that that character of that animal is something that comes into you as well. And if, it's interesting, if you look at it, all the animals that we seem to, the, the Torah says could be kosher, are generally very calm animals. A lamb, a sheep, a cow, a chicken, these are pretty calm things. Lions and bears and tigers and vultures and these kind of things. Um, their disposition and their character, Hashem said, no, we can't eat. So, and so, that, so therefore, that's why we rely on Hashem. He's the one who made all the animals and He knows their nature. And the one who created them knows the nature and the character that's embedded in the flesh of each and every one of these creatures. So He told us, don't eat this and do eat this, okay? You follow what I'm saying so far? So it seems to be from all these sources, welcome, hello. It seems to be from all these sources so far that there seems to be something in the actual non-kosher food itself that engenders a teva raw, like a negative kind of nature disposition in a Jew that is not good for our soul. So up to here it seems to be that there's something in the actual food. However, if you learn the rest of the sources, it's not so clear 
that there's something about the food itself. There's a... There's a Gemara, a passage in the Talmud, in Tractate Yuma, Davlamites Amud Aleph 39a, that expounds upon the verses dealing with kosher and Parsha Shemini. And it says over there, the Talmud concludes from those verses, it says that sin, doing an Avera, doing the opposite of what Hashem wants, that obstructs the heart of a person. What does that mean? A person, God forbid, needs a bypass? No, it means spiritually that doing the opposite of what Hashem told you to do, sinning, obstructs your spiritual heart and being able to get closer to Hashem. So from that Gemara, it seems to say the opposite. That it doesn't seem to be, in that passage it says in the Talmud, it doesn't seem to be that there's something inherent in non-kosher food that is going to have a negative effect on you. It seems to be the fact that Hashem said no, and you're doing it anyway, the fact that you're transgressing what He wants, that's what has the negative effect on a Jew's soul, not the actual food item itself. You follow me so far? seems to be going in both directions. Both directions. I'll give you another source on this. I'll give, you like sources? I'll give you more sources. There's a Chazal you can find in the Medrash Tehillim and in certain editions of another Medrash called the Medrash Tanchuma. Not every Medrash Tanchuma has it. Rabbeinu Bachaya uh, had this version of the Medrash Tanchuma. Famous idea it says over there. The word for a pig in Hebrew, a pig is a Chazer or a Chazir. Okay? Chazir. The word chazir means to return, okay? So it's the same shirish, the chazayin rish, it means to come back, to return. So why is that about? So chazal say something there over interesting, that's because in the osid chazal say, the sages say that in the future, it's called chazir, the pig's called chazir, which means like to return, because lahachaziroi, because in the future, lahachaziro, Hashem is going to return the pig to the Jewish people. What does that mean? It actually says, from the sages of the Talmud, in that era, that in the future, the, yeah, right now the pig's not a kosher animal, but the day is going to come that in the future, maybe after the Messiah comes or whatever, after Mashiach, it's, it's going to be allowed. It's going to be okay. So what do you see from there? So I'm thinking about it. If you see from there, it must be that there's nothing inherent in the pig itself other than right now Hashem said no. And one day, he's going to say, it's mutter, it's kosher, you're allowed to eat it, and then it would be okay. So from these sources, it seems like there's not necessarily something deleterious in the actual flesh of something that's not kosher, that's negative on a Jew, but the fact that Hashem forbade it. You see what I'm saying? seems to be two streams of thought in the commentaries. And this stream of thought, that it's not uh, uh, whether it's the actual item itself, but the fact that Hashem said yes or Hashem said no... That makes it, the fact that he said no, is what makes it harmful, not the actual thing itself. The Briskarov, a very much popularized, famous rabbi, the Briskarov popularized that idea in the yeshiva world, very much from, in his writings and from on, that idea that it's not the actual thing, it's, it's the fact that Hashem said no, is what makes it allergic to you. Because he said no, it's not, it's not the actual thing itself. So ready for this? And this discussion is not just theoretical practically would have a good implication as well. Why? There are times that halacha, Jewish law, would practically in real life mandate that you're mechuyiv, you're obligated to eat something non-kosher. What if a person was, God forbid, in the Holocaust, right? What would, if a person was in the Holocaust, and you have to, the Torah says that if the only thing around to, to eat is non-kosher, and you have to save your life, you're, the, the Torah requires you to eat something non-kosher. You follow? That's, the Torah requires you, this way you live another day, and then one day you'll, God willing, survive the Holocaust, you keep kosher the next 70 years. You know what I mean? 
So what are you supposed to do? You're, the halacha in that case will require you to eat something non-kosher. So there's a big practical difference. And I don't know what the answer is, but there's, we call this in Talmudic language a nafkamina. A big practical real-life difference between these two. If it's really that there's something deleterious and harmful in the actual item of the food itself, then therefore what? It would be that even if you're eating it, despite the fact that halal requires you in that time, you're doing what you're supposed to. But afal pike, nonetheless, it'll still have a negative impression on you nonetheless. But if it's only the fact that Hashem normally said, no, 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 you know, then that's why it would have been harmful. But in a case when he's actively telling you, you are mechuyiv, obligated to eat that thing, then it would be okay. You follow what I'm trying to say? In that case, it would be okay. So it's not just a theoretical nice thing between the Rishonim and Achrayinim and all the different commentaries, but it would have a practical, practical, practical nafkamina lehalach, a practical idea, okay? A little bit of the kashrus, kash, why am I dealing with all this kashrus stuff and the stuff? Because it's connected to, why is the kosher law, at the end of last week's parsha connected to the having a baby at the beginning of the parsha. Okay, now I want to explain something else here, which um, a lot of times people learn things in Tyra and they don't understand what they're reading. And in fact, not only don't understand what they're reading, they reach the opposite conclusions of what the Tyra is trying to say. Sometimes it's because we just literally don't know what it means. Sometimes because we have certain secular predispositions and we think we know what the Torah says and means and what's up and, and what the, uh, the Torah observance has for us. So I'll give you an example. The Torah says over here that if a lady, in the beginning of our parsha, she's going to give birth to a little baby boy, she's going to be something we call Tameh, meaning that she's like off limits to her husband and ritually, spiritually, there's a certain tummy impurity period. It says for a minimum, like a seven-day period. Okay, that's if she has a boy. Then it says if she has a girl, it's double. It's going to be 14 days. So what does that mean? First of all, like, why having a baby's a, a nice thing, a happy thing. Like, why am I becoming like tummy, like ritually impure in this certain kind of way? Is that a baby? I don't know. I think this would be great. It should erase my... Uh, Tuma, my impurity. Why, why is this causing? That's number one. And number two, I've been blessed. I have sons. I have daughters. You know, like, why should, uh, having a daughter is a great thing. Why would it trigger a double Tuma period uh, from having a, a boy? It's a fair question. So, listen to this. So the Shaloha Kaddish and the Smas Emes answer, and they answer in a very similar fashion. Okay? Number one. Here's the first rule you have to know about Tuma and Tahira. What, what, what we call what's Tuma spiritually impure and, and what's, what's not. Okay, number one. Here's the first rule. The first rule, if you're going to know other halachas of this, you've got to know that Tuma, spiritual impurity, fills whatever vacuum and space that Kedusha, sanctity, is not there. Okay? So what happens? When there's sanctity, there's something holy and Kadosh, then it's Tahor, it's pure, and it just, it is. But when that kadosh thing, that holy thing, is removed, in the, into that vacuum and space comes what we call tumma. That's the first rule of understanding this, okay? And so what happens? So if you look in the Torah, the biggest source of impurity is a dead body, okay? The impure, I mean, you bury, we have to bury the person, but there's something, there's something about touching a dead body. So why is that? What, we, we think the person has the cooties? Like, <laughs> what is this already? Tuma, what does this mean? The answer is simple. The person had a soul, which is a piece of God inside of them. That's huge holiness that was there. 
And when the person passes away, that soul leaves the body. And into that, into that space and vacuum comes Tumah. Okay? That's what happens. And if you look at all of the places that the Torah speaks about Tumah, that's generally what you find. That Tumah, spiritual impurity, comes when holiness departs, or a potential for holiness that was there leaves the room. Okay? When there's holiness that leaves, or potential for holiness that leaves. That's what happens. So, um, and if you, and if you, the, all the t- examples in the Torah make that clear. Holiness, potential, or potential for it leaves, Tumah enters the space. Okay, so what happens? So if a lady is carrying a baby, right? The baby, that's, that's a lot of potential for Kedusha, for sanctity. This little kid could do all kinds of mitzvahs, great stuff for a whole lifetime, you know? So there's Kedusha in there. And when the lady gives birth to the child, in that vacuum where the sanctity was, comes this spiritual force we call Tumah. Okay? That's number one. So why should it come out? Why should it come out that a lady, if she gives birth to a girl, it should be twice as long as the Tumah period for a boy? The answer to the Tyrus says, Shloss Vasem is very simple. Look, the Jewish kid, he's great. And this little boy, he could do a lot of great things in his life, you know? But you know what? He's like, his potential and whatnot, that's like seven days. Okay, so he had a certain holiness, and that's worth seven days of tuma after. But you know what? If the mommy had been carrying a little girl, Svasemish and Shlaw said, like, she could have, this little girl can give birth to more kids and more kids and more kids, and those kids can have more kids. So the potential that's packed in there for Kedusha and sanctity into the future is even more when she's carrying a little girl. So the vacuum and the space created into which the Tumah can rush in after is increased as well. You follow? So that explains why. Why would it be that having a, a baby, which is a happy occasion, would trigger Tumah, something spiritually impure? The answer is doesn't mean that the mommy, God forbid, is dirty or the baby's dirty. It means if you understand the basic dynamic of what this is and how it works, you got it. Okay, number two, that explains why it's a compliment to girls and ladies and women. If you understand what the mystical sources say, why it would be double the period. Okay? Good. Got a lot going. Yeah, here we go. Now, I want to speak about bris mila, circumcision. Why? Because it's in our parsha. Chapter 12, verse 3 says, On the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin of this little kid is going to have a bris mila. Question is, Why? What's with the eighth day? Well, you say, well, that's what it says in the Torah. Yeah, but I mean, why? Like, I mean, Hashem said so. But why did he pick the eighth? What's the meaning? What's so special about the eighth day? Okay? Now, everyone in this room will, God willing, you know, if you don't uh, already have a son, you're going to have sons. You, maybe you are sons. You'll speak at bris. You'll be invited to speak at a bris. You'll, you'll cater one. You'll be busy with a bris. Everybody in life, if you want to be a fully functional Jew, you have to know some good bris of our Torahs, okay? You have to have something to say in a bris. You just have to, okay? So, because I like you, I'm going to give you not one or two, but I'm going to give you ten explanations right now. Boom, 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 boom. Like machine gun fire. Why is it that we have the bris mila on the eighth day? You like that? Let's do it. Okay. Here we go. See, you told me not to drink cold water before the thing. I told you, this is not going to affect me in the slightest. Here we go. Number one, count on your fingers. Number one, the Gemara says in Tractate Nida, it says that why is the bris on the eighth day? And I quoted this Gemara in a different class in the last week or two. It says, so that the guests at the bris 
They shouldn't be enjoying themselves while the parents are unhappy. Well, what are the parents going to be unhappy? Because Midaray, so at the Torah level, the basic amount of Tuma period, really in real life there's more halachas, and the amount of time that the husband and wife won't be able to come in physical contact after they give birth is actually really longer. But at the basic level, it's at least seven days. So what? So the Torah is saying that why is the Brits on the eighth day? Because it doesn't seem right. Everybody is eating their bagels and their cream cheese and their locks and they're having a good time in donuts and cakes and at your expense and their orange juice and their Tropicana and the you know they're having a good time. And the husband and wife can't even give each other a congratulatory hug or whatever else. So at the basic level, by the eighth day, the first reason the Talmud says is that's where everybody can be you know happy in the in operating again. Okay, that's number one. That's one. Number two. The Medrash says in Devarim Rabbah that Hashem waits until this eighth day because He has rachamim, He has mercy on that little Jewish kid. He has mercy on that child. He has mercy on him. What does that mean? So the Medrash says because um, you know, a kid's going to need to have strength to endure the bris milah. The kid's going to have to have to have the, the, be sort of healthy and strong enough to, to make it through the bris. So you know, by the eighth day, kids will be good. Now the Rambam says in Meir Nevochim that there are many children that are actually strong enough, physically enough, to have a bris milah and to be fine uh, even before that. I don't know if it's five, six, seven, eight, but the Rambam writes in Meir Nevochim in section three that Hashem made an across-the-board rule, day eight, and every kid will be ready to go by this day. Let's do it. Okay, that's number two. Three. What's the third reason? So the Zayar HaKadosh and the Medrash of Rabbah explain that at the bris, at the time of a bris milah, at the time of that, the child, he has the din, the status of a carbon, like an offering in the Beis HaMikdash. Now what's a halacha? There's a halacha that a carbon, an offering in the Beis HaMikdash, cannot be brought until the animal has lived at least seven days and passed through a Shabbos. That's a halacha, Okay. If you, let's say you have a little sheep, and your sheep makes a baby sheep, and you want, in the time of the Pesach Mikdash, and you want to bring your sheep to the, your, the temple, listen, you, you got to wait till it's been alive at least seven days, and pass through Shabbos, and you could do it. So as the Torah says, this is the Zohar, and the Medrash says this, so in the same way, the kid who has the status of a carbon at the time of his bris milah has to wait seven days, plus the Shabbos, so once you hit the eight days, you know, this little Corbin, this little boy, Yankel, or Beryl, or uh, David, or whatever you're going to call him, he'll be ready to go. Okay? That's the third reason. You enjoying this? This is good stuff. This is good stuff. I'm going to... That's, that's only three. And then there's the some parts of it. I, I got more for you, okay? Not only that, you might ask me, oh, the kid has the status of a carbon, an offering. What kind of carbon? An island, a shlamim, and a zach. There's all kinds of carbonists. What kind of carbon is the kid anyway? <laughs> so, all jokes aside, you can, you can make all kinds of <laughs> kids a sacrifice, an offering, a carbon. You can make all kinds of jokes. But the truth is, the measure says in Yalkut Shemayni and Parshish Lech Lecha, and it's a pirka that Rebbe Eliezer says, at the bris mila, the kid is like bringing a carbon mincha. A meal offering. Why? It's not for tonight. But if you want to know which, which carbon is the kid like, it's called a carbon mincha. Shui, work on that. But do you hear? Did you know? That's Pirkei that I believe has a carbon mincha. Okay, good. Now, let's go more. There's a, a, another idea. Why is the bris on the eighth day? So the Rechaim HaKadosh connects this to a Medrash and Bereshis Rabbah. The Medrash says over there that the world was lacking and unstable, like from when God created it, until the first Shabbos arrived, okay? 
and it was like no, it was like shaky somehow. I wasn't really there, but somehow the world wasn't all totally like congealed and ready how it was supposed to be till the first Shabbos came. So the Rechaim Hakadosh says the child won't have the strength for the bris to pass till the eighth day. But like the, like the world wasn't ready until like the first like Shabbos came. So too we need the kid to be alive for at least one full week, and then he'll have it eight days. He'll be guaranteed a Shabbos. He'll be ready to go because like a person is like an oilam cotton, like a miniature world. Person's like a world. A whole thing over there. You save a life. It's like you save a world. Okay. A famous explanation that many people have heard before comes from the Maral. The Maral says this in the Teferis Yisrael in chapter 2. He says, Maral's with numbers. Maral says you have to know what's number 7 and number 8. 7 and 8. 7 in Jewish numbers represents the normal seder and order of how the world is. Like you have like, it's like 6 days of creation and then the 7th day of Shabbos. The normal way that the world works is a cycle of seven. Eight is one more. So normal, basically, the way the physical world is, is what number? That's a seven. The realm of miracle is what we call a mala minateva. Like above nature, that's eight. It's like Hanukkah is eight days. Things like this, okay? Hanukkah, eight. Eight is above nature, and seven is the number of nature. Okay. So what does the Maral want over here? So what he says is like this. So basically, this is the point, is that the bris mila... First of all, where does it take place? Does it take place on your nose? It takes place on your pinky? No. It takes place on the part of a person's body, which could be abused and used for physicality. You know? A person is not a behemoth, not an animal, although many people act like it for different reasons, sometimes because they're ignorant, sometimes because they just don't want to have self-control. But a, a person is not an animal, you know, not an animal. I mean, just because we, we breathe oxygen and, and so do they, we're not an animal. So what happens? So some people, they're hungry, so they eat. They're tired, so they sleep, and they're thirsty, so they drink. And if they have an itch and urge in that area over there, they express it too. You know, I'm thirsty, I drink, I have an urge, I just, whatever, it is what it is. That's a number seven level of existence, okay? And the bris mila happens on the part of the person that could be most used or misused for physicality and represent just being what we call magushim, physical and dominated by the physical. And it happens on the eighth day to say that a, a yid, a Jew, certainly a Jewish man, has to take that which could be physical and just, it's the part of the body that's like number seven, so to speak. You know, that just, it is what it is. And you take that part that could be so physical and you try to consecrate it with level eight level of existence. That's why the Maral says Brismila is on the eighth day. Interesting stuff, okay? That's what the Maral says over there. Tell you a little bit more. I'll give you a very, very interesting reason many haven't heard also. This is pretty cool. You can, you, you can definitely use this at a bris sometime. The Drisha and Hilchas Mila and the Tazin Yeridei give a very practical reason why bris is day eight. You ready? They say that, you know, it's a famous passage in the Talmud, Tractate Nida, the Aflamet Amad Bey, says that when the child is in his mother's stomach in the womb, we know, the Gemara says, that an angel comes and teaches you the entirety of Tyra when you're in there. An angel comes and teaches you the whole Tyra. And when you're going to be born, the angel gives you like a, a whack over here, strikes you on the mouth, and the child forgets the entire Tyra. So the Drish and Hilchas Mila and the Tazaniridea say that why is Bris Mila on the eighth day? Because the kid knew all of the entire Tyra. This little kid knew it all. 
the entire Torah and he just forgot it? So the first seven days after he's born, they say it's like a period of Shiva. Like mourning, yeah? Like Shiva, never Shiva. The kid is in Shiva for seven days. I knew all of the Torah, all of Medrash, all of Kabbalah, all of Zayr, everything Rabbi Bregman was going to say tonight, backwards and forwards, and everything else, you know? I knew that all, and I just, and I just had it taken away from me. Ay-yoy-yoy, what's going to be with me over here? You know what I mean? So because of that, and that feeling, and, that, and because of that, we leave the kid alone for his, his Shiva period. We leave the kid alone for his Shiva period, and we're going to pick up again. We're going to pick up again with day eight, because the Shiva is over, and uh, he's not in mourning anymore. That's interesting. Some kind of sound going on over there. Okay. Um, no problem. <laughs> okay. Um, you know what? Just, just, just in the interest of time, because I see that time is escaping us. Can I Nahara? I, this is the fastest hour of my week. I'm just, I'm just going to maybe I'll give you one more interesting, interesting reason that many people don't know for why Bris Mila is on the eighth day. And if you reach out to me, I'll give you the rest. Those of you in the room, those of you who want to send me an email, director at jeln.org, I'll give you the rest of the reasons privately after by email or what have you. Okay, let's just do one more. There's uh, the Medrash Springs and the Mayam Loyes on the verse in Tehillim, chapter 6, verse 1. The Mayam Loyes says, that before humanity was given the mitzvah bris milah, before we had a mitzvah bris milah, we already had some commandments in the world. You know how many we had? We had seven. The sheva mitzvahs b'nei noyach. The seven, what they call Noahide laws, yeah? Every person had seven, seven mitzvahs. There was already seven mitzvahs. There were seven mitzvahs in the world. But then there was another one given to Avram Avinu, and he was told to give himself bris milah. So bris milah, says the Mayim Loyez, was the... Eighth mitzvah given. So, since it was the eighth mitzvah given, let it be on the eighth day. Yeah? You hear? Good stuff. Okay, that's good stuff right there. Okay. Now, I'm meant to drink from this. Okay. I don't know how to have I got excited. Okay. Now, I'm just, I'm just picking, picking and choosing my spots because there's a lot, a lot to say tonight. Okay. Now, this is like the intro to the parsha. Most of the rest, and that's Tatsriya and Mitzvahira for sure, for sure. It's going to be busy with Tsaras. Tsaras, Tsaras. What is Tsaras? Tsaras is, is sort of like this physical skin problem and ailment that used to happen in like the temple times that could happen to a person because they transgressed one of many Averas, one of many sins. Now, many people think Tsaras only comes from speaking Lashon Hara, gossip, slander, uh, you know, words that, that cause ill will between fellow Jews. That's true. But the Gemara in Erechen, list a full Hara. The building itself is responding to the Shir, yeah? And the Gemara in Erechen lists a, a list of seven transgressions that a person could do which could trigger them to get Tsaras. Did you know that? There's seven. It's not just Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara is on the list. But let me tell you what the Gemara says in Eirechin. Number one, Lashon Hara. Two, murder. All these things in the time of the temple, if you did some of these, it could cause you to develop a certain kind of skin problem called Tsaras. Lashon Hara, murder. Three is vain oats. Four is Gilearias, uh, illicit relations. Five is haughtiness. Six is theft. And seven is stinginess. 
maybe it's uh, good sometimes we don't have this uh, Taras today, because otherwise we'd all be covered. I mean, you know, you know, <laughs> between one or the other, stingy, haughty, other that, you know. Okay, so Baruch Hashem, we don't have that. So what would happen? So Kaddish Baruch Hu, Hashem would put this Taras on a person. It's sort of like a little bit of a wake-up call, like, hello, you got something going on with you. And they're like, oh boy, I need a Jewish Kohen dermatologist. Like, well, what's going on over here, okay? I, I hope it's because I was out in the midbar too long or something. You, you, you're hoping that's not what you say, you know, from an Aveira? Okay. But normally... Uh, what happens is if you really had saras, what would happen is that that individual has to do teshuva, that individual has to repent. And if you do, it disappears. Okay, most people know that part. Now let me tell you a little bit more. Pay close attention. Where does a nega of saras, a blemish of saras come on a person? That comes on a person's skin. Okay? What's the word in the Torah for skin? It's the word ar. It's spelled ayin vav reish. Ayin vav reish is ar. Okay. Now, many people know the word ar. It sounds like the word for light. Yeah? The word for light is ar, but that would be with an aleph. Aleph, in the beginning, would be light, and ayin vav reish, that's the skin. So there's light, and there's skin, kind of similar. Ar, ar, a little bit different letters, but sound the same. It's also interesting, the word for a blemish, like of the tzeras that would come on you, that's called a nega. Okay? Nun Gimel Ayin. That's the same letters if you jumble them up. Ayin Nun Gimel is the word Oineg, which is pleasure. It's kind of interesting. Like a lot of these words that come up have like similarities to others that we think of, but seem to be the opposite. You can have light, which seems like nice and positive, but then you can have a problem on your R, on your skin. R, R, you know? Nega is a blemish. But if you move around the oisiest, the letters, it's the word oneg. Like an oneg shab is pleasure, good. Oneg is good. Nega is not good, right? I'll give you another one. The oisiest, the letters of the word tseras, the skin problem, it's the same letters as the word, if you move them around, is atseres. Atseres, like shmini atseres, means a holiday. You know, you can have tseras, is atseres. Or, or, or. Nega, Oneg, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Like, what does that all mean? You know, it's interesting. It's not a coincidence that in this sugi, in this topic, all these words are similar. Are you with me? Yes? Okay. So what's this about? So the point is this, and it is a very important idea. We have to know, and this doesn't just apply to Tiras, this applies to every time Hashem gives us a whack, and we're not excited. It's not when God gives us what feels like a punishment, it's not really there for, to be punitive per se. The function of getting a patch, a whack, a hit from Hashem, it's really to inspire the person to do teshuva. But if you do it, and you heed the warning system, you pay attention to the message, you go, oh, I get it. What happens? The Torah says that your nega turns to oneg. Your, the problem on your R turns to R. The problem on your skin turns to light. And the, and the teras becomes an atzeras, a holiday for you. Life is good. Because it's a great feeling in life to have problems and shortcomings, pinpoint them, fix them, and move on with life. That's a great feeling, no? I love it. I love finding out areas that I need. I mean, don't send me some emails now, you know, <laughs> or after the guy said, since you said you really, you wanted to hear. I've been meaning to bring this up to you. I mean, with due respect. Please spare me. I mean, I, I have feelings too. But it's a great feeling, no? To have shortcomings in areas where we say we're schwach, we're weak, things that are not right, and to fix it, that's an unbelievable feeling. That's, that's terrific to get close to Hashem. So if you can figure out where you have in your life a nega, right? 
Your blemish, it could, it's a big oneg. Your, your tzeras becomes an ateris, it's a holiday, gavaldic. And in fact, you even often, if you're careful in life, you look back and you realize the times Hashem many times gave you a big smack. You can actually harness that and push through with that to become something more. You know that expression? I was just saying this to somebody last night. I had a meeting very, very late last night. Somebody was telling me, you know that expression? You know, anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I said, I don't agree. I said, why? I said, I know plenty of people who've gotten whacked very bad in life, and it didn't make them stronger, made them weaker, and they still haven't gotten up. You know? So what, what is it? Anything in life that doesn't kill you, and if you harness that pain and adversity and use it to push through and become something, you know, then it'll make you stronger, you know? We can take those moments in life that we got a whack, we find the nega, we find that we have a problem. You can take it and grab it and become something with it. You can. That's a great feeling when you're able to do it. But just because something happens in life that's not comfortable, does it make you stronger? I know plenty of people, you know, that they didn't get killed, but uh, they, they've taken quite a beating and they didn't get up yet. You know what I'm trying to say? So, I don't know. A lot of people like to throw around that quote, but uh, I think it has to be true. You know, it has to be true. It, it'll make you stronger if you grab it and make it, makes it makes you stronger. All right. Let's keep going in the parasha. Chapter 13, verse 2. Yeah? Okay, we have some laughter over here on the uh, right side of the room. Okay, it must be, must be something we said. Hopefully you're right. Okay, the Pesach says this. If a person will have on the skin of his flesh. What does that mean? If a person, if an Adam will have on the skin of his flesh. And the Pesach over here is speaking about a nega, the blemishes and all of this. It says, if a person, and he uses the word Adam. Adam, if an Adam will have on his skin, blah, 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 blah. And, and the whole Saras discussion. So it seems to come out from here that any person, even a non-Jew, could receive Tsaras. Yeah, it seems like it. it. Seems like any person could have it. It doesn't say if a Jew has this on his skin. It says if an Adam. Adam means like a person. Okay. So you would say that anybody, any human being, could get Tsaras. But if you want to say that's the case, it's clear that you never learned the Gemara. Okay? Or you didn't learn it well, because the Gemara says in Baba Metziah, and the same Gemara is in Yavamis also. It says that Adam, only Klal Yisrael is called Adam, but the Umos Ha'ilam, the nations of the world, when the Tyrus says Adam, meaning a person, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean them, it just means us. Adam in Tyra is code word. In Chumash, it just means Jews, even though it sounds like in English, if an Adam has a a person, oh, anybody could have Tzeras, that's what it says, an Adam, it doesn't say a Jew, it doesn't say Yisrael, it says an Adam. Adam means, in Sigmar and Baba Metziah and Yavamah, Adam means us. Okay. Okay. So only a Jew could have Tzeras. Okay. So you might ask me this question. If the function of Tzeras, it's not really a punishment per se, but it's a Kaddish Baruch Hu's warning system. Hashem was, put something on you physically to alert you you have shortcomings, and it could come for speaking Lashon Hara primarily. Wouldn't it be great? Why wouldn't God make it that the whole world would have, wouldn't he make it that the whole world would have this kind of warning system? Hey, you speak gossip, you live here, you live there. Trust me. Seems like a good idea. But this way, I didn't write the Tyra. I just tried to learn what Hashem, tried to understand what Hashem wanted over here and not to superimpose my mind. But you would think that the whole world would benefit from a divine warning system in this fashion. Seemingly so. But speaking Lashon Hara. 
It's a famous question. So Rav Shoma Gansfried, Neperian, explains something very important. He says, you know, when it comes to Lashon Hara, gossip and slander, we know that it can cause enormous social harm and division amongst people. Now, when it comes to the Jewish people, that's a big problem, okay? That's a big problem. You know why? Because we have a mandate from Hashem to be unified, to have unity. There's a, an obligation that God gave us that the Jewish people are supposed to be unified and have unity. We're supposed to have achdos together. Now, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's harder. It's something we have to work on. But we have an obligation of achdos. Jewish people have an obligation of achdos. We have an obligation of achdos. Okay? And it's something that God wants from us and expects. But the truth is, if you read the Torah, the nations of the world may have unity sometimes. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But the Torah doesn't give them an obligation to have unity. You hear what I'm trying to say? The nations of the world don't have an obligation to have unity. They don't. They don't have an obligation like we do. And Rosh Hashanah points out that the truth is, Fakert, the opposite, there have been many times, if you study world history, that the unity experienced by peoples in the world is actually used in a destructive way, in a counterproductive way. And that's, I mean, and I'm not just talking about World War I and II and they, I'm not talking about those kind of things. Even if you look even in the Chumash, in the chapter 11, the book of Beratius, Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel, that was the first time that the world as a whole was unified, and what do they want to do? Build a tower, fight with God, get rid of them, there's all kinds of stuff, you know? So, in some cases, so therefore what? So only Cloud Yisrael, who has a mandate for having achdus, is it that the Torah doesn't want us to make sure, make sure we don't speak Lashon Hara, make sure you have a lot of unity, because we don't want the whole world speaking gossip, we don't want anybody, I mean, per se, to speak gossip, but we've seen that many times, that when the other people out there in the world have disunity, that it's uh, many times to our benefit. I remember growing up in the, uh, in the 80s, I remember my mom, I wasn't observant at the time, but I remember my mom was, used to tell me that there was a, this Iran-Iraq war. Now, I didn't know... Like in the whole 80s, like there was like a, like a decade-long war between Iran and Iraq, and like hundreds of thousands, I don't even know, millions of people like got killed and stuff, you know? And I, I heard about it, and I just like, I said, my mom used to say, she used to tell me in Hebrew, she used to tell me like, it's like between themselves, between themselves, I, you know? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, because if that'll come to an end, you know, they're just going to take that energy and direct it towards us and direct it towards Israel. You know what I mean? That's what happened. When that ended, then they started throwing scuds in the Gulf War and, you know, and all the other kind of stuff. So, like, you know, but when they had unity, you know, we end up on the receiving blow. And there's many examples of this in history. So that some want to say that it's a famous idea that this is the Vart. This is Pshat. Why only Klal Yisrael is called Adam? Adam, I said, it says person Adam, only the Jewish nation is the name Adam. You know why? Person Adam, you know why? It's interesting. There's many words in the Torah that represent a person. Enosh, Ish, Gever. All those words could be made plural. Enosh, Ish, Gever. That's singular for a person. It could be made plural. Okay? Adam, which is the name for a person, that's the, the name that specifically means the Jewish people, that name can't be plural. The plural of Adam is not Adamim or something. If you know Hebrew, it sounds ridiculous. There is no word. Plural of Adam is Adam. Why? Because that's us, and we have a mandate from Hashem to act as one and remain as one as much as we can. You follow? Okay. Now, I want to speak a little bit more about Tsaras. When you get Tsaras on your skin, it's called a nega. Nega of Tsaras. 
Now, the word nega, if you know the letters, uh, it's the same as the word negia. Like, many people are familiar with shomer negia. I mean, that's a popular one, right? Shomer negia means that uh, shomer negia, we guard touch. There are certain people, of, you know, opposite gender, who are outside of your immediate family. You don't touch. You just, you just, you don't touch. Negia means touching. Nega is touching, and negia is touching. So what does the word nega for a blemish have to do with touching? So Rav Shamsham Fahal Hirsch wanted to say, it's because if you have a nega of tsaras, or, a, or in general, another kind of blemish or problem going on in your life, know that Hashem is trying to touch you. He's trying to get your attention. Shem is tapping you on the shoulder. Hey, Jew. Yeah, you know, you're going to have a problem going on. This doesn't seem right. This relationship, this financial thing, this thing in your spiritual life. You don't feel close to me, whatever else. Hey, guess what? I'm touching you. You have a nega, a blemish. You got a problem going on in your life. Guess what? I'm tapping you on the shoulder. We're not Shomer Nagia, you and I. You know what I mean? I'm touching you. You hear? I'm giving, I'm giving you Nagia over here. We're t- I'm touching you. Because I'm trying to get your attention. It's time for you to introspect and make a change. Now, on a related but more mystical note, the Mikubalim, the Kabbalistics farm, say something very interesting. Tsaras, they say, was like dead skin on a person. What do I mean by dead skin? Like dead skin, like my, my hands are still like dry from the winter no matter how much lotion I put on. Like that kind of dead skin? No, a different kind of dead skin, Okay. The Torah says that the way Hashem created Adam, the first person, he was he made his physical body and then he put into them the soul. But there's a famous comment of Unkelis that the soul of a person gave, is also synonymous with like the person's ability to speak, a speaking spirit. Okay? How do we become alive? There's a body and the ability to speak, which is, which is tantamount and, and it's the same thing as the soul, part and parcel. When that happens, that's when we're able to be alive. Okay? So say the mystical Sfarim, if a person will speak Lush and Hara, gossip, slander about his fellow Jew, what happens? You are corrupting your soul, which is connected to your capacity for speech. And therefore, some of the life energy that comes to you from Hashem becomes basically cut off. Your life energy is connected to your faculty of speech. That's classic Unculus. I mean, it's classic Unculus, okay? So your, fact, your energy in life, your energy force, is, comes and is derived to, it's married to your faculty of speech. You corrupt that, your life force diminishes, and it's reflected in a little bit of the death of the physical self, of the physical self, of the skin, and that's Tsaras. Now I want to say something else. I don't, know if I, sp- I don't know if I spoke about this last week. Actually, I didn't. Maybe I did. I don't think I did. doesn't matter. I'll just keep going. Okay, but before we do that, I'll give you something else. Chapter 13, verse 2. Tyrus says very clearly that if you have uh, a Shiloh, you have a question, do I have a neg of Tiras on my skin? What do I do with it? Yeah, I know you, 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 you do what everybody else does. You go on the internet and uh, you, you look at your medical problems and you're not sure. You, you either have like a, like a rash and you need a little cream or you're like you're dying, God forbid. Like, you know, <laughs> I've tried that before. Let's see, uh, you know, I don't need a doctor. I don't need some copay, especially under the Obamacare care era. You know what I'm saying? You know, copay ain't what it used to be, you know? I don't know who, for whom the Affordable Care Act is affordable, but ain't for, it, it ain't for your Rabbi Bregman here, okay? You know? <laughs> but that's not for tonight. But anyway, so what happens? So you try to diagnose yourself, and you know, and you think like, okay, either God forbid I have some unpronounceable, like, you know, like, you know, South, 
South African like virus that's like <laughs> deadly or something. Or, you know, I like I shook hands with a person who had like bacteria on his hand. I don't know. You know, you you wonder. So but you can't do that with Taras. You can't self diagnose. The Tyra says you gotta go to a Kayan. And one of the chief jobs of a Kayan is to know how to rule and poskin on blemishes of the skin like that. That's supposed to be his job. Now, it's clear if you look in the Rambam that if a Kayan doesn't know, doesn't know those halachas, what do you do? Okay, you can move on. What happens? If you don't know the halachas, it's not a problem. You, you can have, go to a, a Tamachacham, a Torah scholar, who's a Yisrael or a Levi, and that person could tell the Kohen the halacha, and the Kayan will then repeat what that ruling is. But really, a Kayan's supposed to know. Okay, that's a background. So listen to this. So if you look in the Sifra, also called the Tyrus Kayhanim, it says over there, if you're a Kayan and you don't know how to paskin, how to rule in, on these, these negas of Taras, these halachas, the Chazal uh, say over there in the Sifra, which is also called Tyrus Kayhanim, it says you are a shaita, you are a fool. Okay? Now the question is, why do the sages call us such a name? Okay, why would a Kayan be called a fool? These halachas are really supremely complicated. Okay, even if you'd be a big Torah scholar today, it's hard to understand what all this is about. So, like, say the guy's knowledge is deficient, maybe we'll call him an Oma Aretz, an ignoramus, he didn't know. But why does the Torah call him a shaita? You're a fool for not learning. A fool? Okay, I don't know, I'm a fool now. Good question. So Rav Zalman Sarotskin Zatzal in those Naim Latayr explains this very, very beautifully. He says like this. He says, the biggest reason that most men aren't much bigger Talmide Chacham and bigger Torah scholars than they are is because they're busy chasing a Parnasa, trying to make a buck, trying to earn a livelihood. All of the hours that a man, right, would be devoted to running around and, and trying to earn, you know, earn a living and take care of his wife and kids and tuitions and every, whatever else. All that time that could have been funneled to scaling the heights of Torah scholarship, he's not going to have it. Is he going to have it? He's not going to have it. Why is he not going to have it? He's not going to have it because he, he's working. He can't learn. 15 hours you're at work. It's 15 hours you're not learning Tyra. 10 hours you're at work. 10 hours you're not learning Tyra. Right? We have a law student in the back of the room, okay? Which, I mean, there's others, potential. I don't want to point at people, you know what I mean? But you know what I mean? You know, so there's others, but you know who you are in the room, okay? And <clears throat> so all these hours, you know, you're, you're there because you're going to have, you're gonna have to make money one day, so you're, you're not able to learn Tyra. I mean, that's, that's the number one reason, even if a guy is a Torah scholar, he's many times not a bigger, 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 bigger one, is to make money, Nebuch, okay? So says of Zalman Sarotskin, Akoyen, Bisman Shabes and Mikdash Hayakoyam. Akoyan in the time of the temple. He didn't have this excuse. You know why? The Gemara says in Hulin that Akoyan would receive twenty-four priestly gifts, okay? From all the different uh, korbanos and offerings in the temple and things that were brought, the Trumas and the Matanis and all these presents. The Kayan got a lot of stuff. The Kayan was taken care of. The Kayan's job was to push and steig and grow and, and teach Tyra and be a Tyra teacher for Klaus. That was his job, okay? That was the Kayan's job. That was his job to do that. And so he didn't have to hustle all day like everybody else. So he had more time on his hands. So you know what Rav Zalman Tarotskin says? This is, why does this Sifra, you've got to remember the question. Some of people say, yeah, okay, I'm with you. But what was the question? We've got to make sure we're going to answer up the question. What was the question? The question was, why does this Sifra call a Kayan who doesn't know these very complicated halachas? He's a shite, he's a fool. Say he's ignorant, but he's a fool now. You know what the answer is? Rav Saratskin says, 
<laughs> this is the answer. The Torah is basically saying this. Hey, yo, Kayan, yeah? You had someone, meaning the Jewish people, paying your bills. You had somebody taking care of your material needs. And you didn't become unbelievable in learning Torah. You didn't master all that Torah. You didn't learn it. What are you going to say? Yet all the time, everybody else is busy run, running around to try to uh, pay their rent. What about you? What's your problem? Why didn't you learn? What's the matter with you? You had all that time you were subsidized and you didn't learn it? You're not just an ignoramus for not learning these halachas. You're a shaita. You're a fool. You were subsidized to learn, to be able to do that much more in Tyra and to accomplish for the community and, and you didn't do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You had somebody paying your bills and you didn't accomplish? You're a fool now, okay? You're beyond the first... We know you don't know the halakhas, but you're a fool. You're straight up. You're a fool. You're a fool. And that's why the Torah calls him that. And I think this is a very strong rebuke to those individuals, whether it could be people in this room, I'm not saying, or it could be other people in different areas and aspects of life. We have to know that if we have opportunities to learn and grow and become something, if we choose not to... If we choose not to, it's, it's a bit of an accusation on us. You hear me? You have to know it's an accusation on you. Whether, let's say you're in college, three, let's say, I know a lot of college students, they're in, they tell me, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. What do you mean you're so busy? Please, I was in college once too. Full class, oh, three, four hours a day. And then you're going to work out an hour. Then now what do you do? Okay, you ain't studying until two nights before finals. We know that. Come on now. What are you doing? Uh, you know, your, your parents are uh, paying your bills. Go learn a little Tyra. I mean, I mean to a person, Rosa Tyra, you have a lot of time in your hand. You know what I mean? For guys in yeshiva, you know, you better, you, better, uh, you better make a profit over there. You know what I mean? Somebody's taking care of you, your housing, this and that. Believe me, it only gets harder as time goes on. So each one of us has to know to what extent we're subsidized. And to that extent, we have to make sure we're going to step up to the plate and do something about it. Okay? We're going to do something about it. Grab that time. Now, we probably have time for maybe one more, I'll say over one more piece. We'll, we'll wrap it up for the night. Okay. So the Tyra says in chapter 13, verse 45, And the person with saras, in whom there is an affliction, his garments shall be uh, rent. Now, rent means, I don't mean like you rent them out. <laughs> you know, rent means like torn. That's what you do. This Tyra speaks about a person who's a mitzaira at the end of the parsha. A mitzaira is the person who has the saras skin. And if it's confirmed you have that, the person's garments have to be torn and the person's going to have to go outside the camp because he's isolated. Because you did some deeds, maybe it was gossip or whatever that caused division amongst people, you got to go, okay? You don't have the privilege anymore to be in the main Jewish encampment with everybody else. You can sit alone by yourself for a while and think how your words cause division amongst people. You go reflect on that. You go sit in the corner, okay? You go, you know, like what parents do, but like more severe. And one of the things that happen is that person's garment, his clothes, have to be ripped. Now, why? What's that about? So the Sefer Chayredim says that that takes place in a Mida Keneged Mida way. Mida Keneged Mida means measure for measure. Why? Because you probably embarrass somebody with your lush and hara, your gossip, your slander. Well, so because you cause somebody shame, we should cause you shame, and that's why your clothes are torn. A person's clothing many times makes them feel honor or honorable, or if a person's in shmatas or in rags or Nebuch looks homeless or something, that, that clothing can make them feel or look very dishonorable in the opposite direction. And that's just not my opinion. You ever heard of Rava? Rava's one of the Amorayim, one of the rabbis of the Talmud. Rava and Babakama, a 91b, calls his clothes his honorers. 
like his honor ors, that, those things that which causes him honor, that's the, in Aramaic, that's what he called his begotten, that's what he called his clothes. So your clothes can cause you honor to feel more, or it can cause you to feel less. So therefore, you're embarrassing people, and you're doing that, you know, we're going to take away a little bit from your clothes also, because that's what happens. Now, I want to just say something about clothes to wrap this up. I honestly don't think that we, as a whole, take our clothing as seriously as the Tyra perspective demands. Now, we're a little bit more than halfway through the Chumash, okay? We're about halfway through the Chumash. I'm going to go right back to the beginning now, okay? In the book of Bereshis, chapter 27, we know the story of Rivka with Esav, and Yitzchak, and the blessings, and Yaakov. We know the story. We know what happens over there. That he, the Rivka wants him to have the blessing, and you know, you, hey, what we're going to have you do, Yaakov, is you're going to dress up, and you're going to wear your brother Esau's clothes, and you're going to be hairy like him, and then maybe your father won't know. And the verse says, Rivka took her older son Esau's clean garments, which were with her in the house, and she clothed Yaakov, her son. So now, why'd she do that? I mean, everybody knows, even little kids know, even like three, four-year-olds know that why'd she do that? Because, you know, to maybe he'll look like his brother in case the father touches him, he'll feel a little certain way, maybe smell a certain way. That's what he was doing. Okay. But for that, that's, uh, that's at the children level. Let's go deeper. So the Chassam Soifer says a deeper reason why Rivka wanted Yaakov to wear those garments when he came to get the bracha from the father. You know why? Listen to this. There's a Yerushalmi, and not just a Babylonian Talmud, but now the Jerusalem Talmud, says in Tractate Mayad Katan, chapter 3 under Halacha Aleph, the Yerushalmi says, ready for this? This is very interesting. So glad you stuck with me. It's worth hearing, yeah? The character of a person gets soaked into his clothes. You hear that? I'll say it again. The character of a person gets soaked and absorbed into that person's clothes. So says Chsam Seifer, this was part of Rivka's calculation, why she wanted Yaakov to wear Esav's clothes. Esav was renowned for being a deceitful person. Yaakov was an Ishtam. He was a sweetie pie. He was honest. He was a straight shooter. Okay? It was very hard for him, even, by, even if it was listening to his mother and it was meant to be and Hashem wanted this, it was still hard for him to act in a way that even seemed deceitful. Okay? So what happened? So Chsam Seifer says that by wearing his clothes, what Rivka wanted, that Yaakov would find it easier to stand in front of his father and act in a way that seemed deceitful. How do you like that? That's you, Shalmi, right there. That's a, that's a moment right there. Okay? We have to know that the clothes we wear, it's something serious. It's something real. We have to, we have to take it seriously. We have to take it seriously. It's a, it's a chash of a zach. It's a big, big, big deal. Anyway, I think we'll be Messiah around here. Um, by way of wrapping up, I thank you all very, very much for being here. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You've been listening to JRoot Radio, 97.5 FM. I want to thank Torah Anytime as well for broadcasting tonight's class. Um, if you would like to get in touch with me in the week or weeks ahead, simply write me an email, director at jeln.org. If you would like a printed version of some of the title we covered tonight, in your inbox, in time for Shabbos, you can review, get all the rest of the sources, things I said quickly, and other stuff. Just ask me for it by email. I'd be happy to send it to you. If you'd like to access previous week's classes, 
Just go to the 97.5 FM website, jrootradio.com, or at torahanytime.com, look up my name, Bregman, and there's like 300-something classes there. That should keep you busy for a while. I wish you a good week, and we'll see you the next time, and good night. TorahAnytime.com sends cameras out day and night to video and audio record the best Torah classes around. We then make them available to you for free. So what are you waiting for? Watch, listen to, and download lectures on TorahAnytime.com today. The best of the Jewish world. JRootRadio.com Visit our new home. www.JRootRadio.com JRoot Radio. Tune in. JRoot Radio. We're always home. Welcome to JRoot Radio here on 97.5 FM. This is the Halakha Hour on Wednesday afternoons from 2 to 3 in the afternoon. Also, this will be repeated, uh, will be played on again tonight at 11 to 12 p.m. Sometimes. We, we go by Jewish time, so sometimes you'll hear it a little bit later than 11, but it's all the same. From 11 to 12, you can hear this class again. Before we begin this class, they, we want to make a few announcements. Number one is that this class is dedicated to the Refuah Shalema of the following people. Eliyahu Haim ben Shafika Sofia, as well as Rifka bat Sarah and Kol Hulea Moisai, especially the children, as well as Bella bat Simha Frida. And regarding the last sick person... We were asked to announce if anybody knows of a liver to transplant that is needed for the Bella Batsimha Frida. So try to get in contact with the radio station to help in this great mitzvah. Anybody else who would like to sponsor the class or advertise on the class, but really more sponsor on the class, you could, or this class or any class, you could call the station at 718. 718- Five zero six nine zero nine nine, or text in at three four seven nine two seven eight three nine eight. Those are the numbers to the studio. We're here today. You could call. You could text in your question, and we're going to be speaking about the subject. Well, this is part two of Chot Pesach, and today's subject is koshering the kitchen. Number two is we're going to hopefully cover also the some halachot of rice and kitniot for the sfaradim, and also Ashkenazim should listen to it. It's important also. And the last subject that we hope to cover today is the common questions that usually come up regarding the preparation for Pesach. And Razat Hashem, next week we'll continue also with the Halachot of Pesach. Again, part two today, we'll be speaking about koshering the kitchen, rice and kitniot, and the last part will be, we'll leave it for the questions that were sent in the past and the ones that are coming up as well. Another announcement to make before we begin, and that is that I know now it's uh, a lot of yeshiva bachurim have off, or they're coming back from the break. Rosh Chodesh Nisan is exactly less than a week. It's next Tuesday already. Tuesday will be Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So if anybody would like to volunteer to sit here with us in the, in the station during the halakha hour on Wednesday afternoons from 2 to 3, it will be very helpful to take in the questions. It'll be much easier. You could still call in today. The technician might be in and out, but you could call in to the station and re- send in your question. But the best way to get your answers, your questions answered is by texting in. I'm going to give the numbers one last time, and we're going to go on to the class. Actually, there's one more announcement. I forgot. One more announcement, and that is that we have on jrootradio.com, J-R-O-O-T radio.com, we have some special videos that will be going on. And these are very important videos. These are videos that we've done in the past. 
One video will be how to make matzah, where you'll see in the matzah bakery exactly how we make matzot. Another video will be how to kosher the kitchen. What we're going to talk about today is the halakha, explaining why we need to do what we need to do. But if you want to see a guide, how to kosher a kitchen, the sfaradim, some are also uh, applicable to the Ashkenazim, you could go on to, the, on to jradio.com and you'll see the video. It might not be on today, we're putting it, back, we're putting it on, but is that the same? We have two other videos also that will be of interest. Number one, another two is our, number one is how to conduct a seder, where we go through the whole seder from beginning, from Kaddish, until Nirza, all the details. It's kind of like sitting with me on the seder, if you want to sit with me. But basically, sitting with the halakha, to see how to run a seder. And the last video that we're putting on, Bezat Hashem, is the simple translation of Haggadah Shal Pesach. A lot of times we get so lost in all the different dirashot and the deeper explanations of the Haggadah, we sometimes miss the basic explanation, the basic translation of the Haggadah, we have also uh, one video where we go through the Haggadah from beginning to end in English, translating it and explaining just in very, very short the basic meaning of the Haggadah, which you could expand on as much as you would like. With that, what we want to tell you, that we're excited that Barzat Hashem, all these videos are on, that are going to be on, we're looking forward to replacing them with the help of JRoot Radio and BSD Productions in Iran. If you, didn't know, if you don't know who Iran is, Iran is from BSD Productions. And highly recommended to get them to all your semahot, whether it's weddings, bar mitzvahs, whatever it is, Iran does a fantastic job. All the videos.